welcome to Silmarillion Sunday, part 21. We start today with chapter 23 of Tuor and the Fall of Gondolin. There are only two chapters left in this Quenta Silmarillion, uh, which is the main part. So we will finish up of Tuor and the Fall of Gondolin today. Uh, and then two weeks from now, we will have our final chapter in the Quenta. Then we will have the Akalabeth. Quick recap, actually, before we do that, I just realized. Uh, so last chapter was of the Ruin of Doriath. And you will remember that Doriath is that big forest in the middle of Middle-earth with the Girdle of Melian, the big force field uh, that Melian, the Maya, has. Melia's husband... Thingol, sorry, had to think about it for a second. Melian's husband, Thingol, just died because um, he got a little bit greedy and wanted to put a Silmaril into, um, like, a crown or a necklace called the Nauglamir, and the dwarves did not take too kindly to that, and they killed him. And then there was this big war between the elves and the dwarves, and they didn't get along very well. And that cycle is just going to repeat itself for the next couple of thousand years, I think. Um, and basically everything is ruined with the one exception of the elven city of Gondolin. Also, I apologize that my green screen is, like, totally broken right now. You can either see my kitchen or my living room or what, but... I'm going to try and keep it as steady as I possibly can uh, without breaking things. Nope, not that button. Hang on. There we go. You figure I would have figured this out already, but no. All right. Let's continue. Chapter 23 of Tuor and the Fall of Gondolin. It has been told that Huor, the brother of Horin, was slain in the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. And in the winter of that year, Rhine his wife bore a child in the wilds of Mithrim, and he was named Tuor, and was taken to foster by Anel of the Grey Elves, who yet lived in those hills. Now when Tuor was sixteen years old, and the elves were minded to leave the caves of Androth, where they dwelt, and to make their way secretly to the haven of Sirion in the distant south, but they were assailed by orcs and easterlings before they made good their escape, and Tuor was taken captive and enslaved by Lorgon, chief of the Easterlings of Hithlim. For three years he endured that thraldom, but at the end of that time he escaped, and returning to the caves of Androth he dwelt there alone, and did such great hurt to the Easterlings that Lorgon set a price upon his head. But when Tuor had lived thus in solitude as an outlaw for four years, Ulmo set it in his heart to depart, set it in his heart, uh, Ulmo the Valar, from the Undying Lands, set it in Tuor's heart. That part is a little bit confusing. Tuor set it in his heart to depart from the lands of his fathers, for he had chosen Tuor as the instrument of his design, and leaving once more the caves of Androth, he went westward across Dor Loman and found Anon in Ga Anon in Gelid. I'm going to pronounce that wrong, sorry. <laughs> The gate of the Noldor, which the people of Torgon built when they dwelt in Nevrast long years before. Thence a dark tunnel led beneath the mountains, and issued into Kirith Ninak, the rainbow cleft, through which the turbulent waters ran towards the western sea. 
Thus it was that Tuor's flight from Hithlum was marked by neither man nor orc, and no knowledge of it came to the ears of Morgoth. Uh, a brief aside, as I pause here, there is an entire 300-page book called The Fall of Gondolin, in which Tuor, the character that we're reading about this, uh, who is the son of Huor, brother of Horin, um, goes on this whole journey um, and gets, and there, there's a lot more detail about Horin's um, or excuse me, about Tuor's journey. If you're interested, if this chapter interests you, I do recommend picking up The Fall of Gondolin, uh, the book. It is written a little bit more in great detail. I have read it several times. It's wonderful. The audiobook is also great as well. Um, and I believe it's available at most local libraries or digitally on Overdrive. Sorry. Regardless, we continue. And Tuor came to Nevrast, looking upon Belagir, the great sea. He was enamored of it, and the sound of it and the longing of it were ever in his heart and ear. And an unquiet was on him to look, to uh, was on him that took him at last to the depths of the realms of Ulmo. Then he dwelt in Nevrast alone, and the summer of that year passed and the doom of Nargothron drew near. But when the autumn came, he saw seven great swans flying south, and he knew them for a sign that he had tarried over long, and he followed their flight along the shores of the sea. So Ulmo is sending him signs, basically. Thus he came at length to the deserted halls of Vinyamar beneath Mount Taras, and he entered in and found there a shield and hauberk and a sword and a helm, that Torgon had left there by the command of Ulmo long ago. This is this is a, a reference to like I think ten or fifteen chapters ago, um, because there was a thing that Ulmo did with Torgon when Torgon created Gondolin. Ulmo many many chapters ago said, "Hey." Um, just in case I need to, like, send you a sign, I'm going to leave a bunch of weapons and armor here. When a person comes in that weapons and armor to your place, that's me talking to you. So listen to this person. We have finally seen that uh, pay off. It's taken a good couple hundred years, but we got there. We got there. <laughs> All right. And he arrayed himself in those arms and went down to the shore. But there came a great storm out of the west, and out of that storm, Ulmo, the lord of waters, arose in majesty and spoke to Tuor as he stood beside the sea. And Ulmo bade him depart from that place and seek out the hidden kingdom of Gondolin. And he gave Tuor a great cloak to mantle him in shadow from the eyes of the enemy. But in the morning when the storm was past, Tuor came upon an elf standing beside the walls of Vinyamar, and he was Voronwe, son of Aranwe of Gondolin, who sailed in the last ship that Torgon sent into the west. Because remember, Torgon sent a bunch of elves, and they were like, hey, go west, we need the Valar's help, please ask for help, and none of them made it. Except for this guy, Voronwe. So let's see what's up with him. But when the ships returning at last out of the deep ocean foundered in the great storm within sight of the coast of Middle-earth, Ulmo took him up alone of all its mariners and cast him onto the land near Vinyamar. 
and learning of the command laid upon Tuor by the Lord of Waters, Veronwe was filled with wonder, and did not refuse him his guidance to the hidden door of Gondolin. Therefore they set out together from that place, and as they fell and as the fell winter of that year came down upon them out of the north, they went wearily eastward, under the eaves of the mountains of shadow. At length they came in their journeying to the pools of Ivrin, and looked with grief on the defilement wrought by the passage of Glaurung the dragon. But even as they gazed upon it, they saw one going northward in haste, and he was a tall man, clad in black, and bearing a black sword. But they knew not who he was, nor anything of what had befallen in the south, and he passed them, and they said no word. That was Torin. That was Torin Torinbar. That was Torin Torinbar. Fun fact. And at the last, by the power of Ulmo, uh, by the power that Ulmo set upon them, they came to the hidden door of Gondolin, and passing down the tunnel, they reached the inner gate and were taken by the guards as prisoners. Then they were led up to the mighty ravine of Orfalk Ekor. <laughs> Pronunciation barred by the seven gates and brought before Ecthelion of the fountain. Ecthelion is not, this is not Denethor's father. There is a common misconception, I think, among people um, that the Ecthelion is uh, of, that is um, Denethor's father is this same person. It is not. Uh, there is Ecthelion the elf and then Ecthelion the human Denethor's father. Uh, they were led up, here we go, they were led up the mighty ravine of Orfalk Ekor, barred by the seven gates, and brought before Ecthelion of the fountain, the warden of the great gate at the end of the climbing road. And there, Tuor cast aside his cloak, and from the arms that he bore from Vinyamar, it was seen that he was in truth the one sent by Ulmo. Then Tuor looked down upon the fair vale of Tumladen, set as a green jewel amid the encircling hills and saw far off upon the rocky heights of Amongwareth, Gondolin, the great city of seven names, of whose fame and glory is mightiest in the songs of all dwellings of the elves in the hitherlands. At the bidding of Ecthelion, trumpets were blown in the towers of the great gate, and they echoed in the hills and far off. But clear there came the sound of answering trumpets blown upon the white walls of the city, flushed with rows of dawn upon the plain. Ah, here we go. Thus it was that, that the son of Huor rode across to Mladen and came to the gates of Gondolin, and passing up the wide stairway of the city, he brought at last to the tower of the king, and looked upon the image of the trees of Valinor. Then Tuor stood before Torgon, son of Fingolfin, high king of the Noldor, and upon the king's right hand there stood Maeglin, his sister's son, nephew. Um, and upon his left stood Idril Celebrindal, his daughter. And all that heard the voice of Tuor marveled, doubting that this were in truth a man of mortal race, for his words were the words of the Lord of Waters that came to him at that hour. And he gave warning to Torgon that the curse of Mandos now hastened to its fulfillment, when all the works of the Noldor would perish. And he bade him depart, and abandon the fair and mighty city that he had built, and go down Sirion to the sea. Then Torgon pondered long the counsel of Ulmo, 
and there came into his mind the words that were spoken to him in Vinyamar. Love not too well the work of thy hand and the device of thy heart, and remember that the true hope of the Noldor lieth in the west, and cometh from the sea. But Torgon was proud, was become proud, and Gondolin as beautiful as the memory of Elvin Tyrion, and he trusted still in the secret and impregnable strength, though even the Valar should gainsay it. And after near Neath Arnoidiad, the people of that city, desired never again to mingle in the woes of elves and men without, nor to return through dread and danger into the west. Shut behind their pathless and enchanted hills, they suffered none to enter. Though he fled from Morgoth, hate pursued, and tidings of the lands beyond came to them faint and far, and they heeded them little. So basically the elves don't want to deal with it anymore. The spies of Angband sought for them in vain, and their dwelling was as a rumor, and the secret of that none could find. Maeglin spoke ever against Tuor in the councils of the king, and his words seemed the more weighty, in that they went with Tur Torgon's heart, and at the last he rejected the bidding of Ulmo, and refused the council. I wonder what could possibly go wrong. <laughs> in the rejecting of bit in, uh, in the but in the, warring, the warning of the Valar, he heard again the words that were spoken before the departing Noldor at the coast of Aramon long ago, and the fear of treason was wakened in Torgon's heart. Therefore in, the, therefore, in that time, the very entrance to the hidden door of the encircling mountains was caused to be blocked up. Therefore, none went forth, went ever forth from Gondolin on any errand of peace or war while the city stood. Tidings were brought back by Thorondor, Lord of Eagles, of the fall of Nargothrond, and after of the slaying of Thingol, and of Dior his heir, and the ruin of Doriath. But Torgon shut his ear to the word of the woes without, and vowed never to march at the side of any son of Feanor, and his people forbade ever to pass the leaguer of the hills. And Tuor remained in Gondolin, for its bliss and its beauty, and the wisdom of its people, held him enthralled, and he became mighty in stature and in mind, and learned deeply of the lore of the exiled elves. Then the heart of Idril was turned to him, and his to her, and Maeglin's secret hatred grew even greater, because, as you'll remember, probably like two or three months ago at this point, if you're keeping up with us weekly, Maeglin was Aeol's son. This was the, 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 the dark elf that kidnapped the one that kidnapped Torgon's sister and um, she gave birth to a uh, a son and that son is Maeglin and Maeglin was good for a really long time but he was really into um, Idril even though they're uh, cousins I think um, and Idril doesn't have feelings for him anymore um, or I don't think ever did and uh, yeah Maglin's, Maglin's not terribly happy right now let's, let's just say that then the heart of Idril was turned to him and his to hers and Maglin's secret hatred grew even greater for he desired above all things to possess her notice it's not his love it's, or it's not her love he desires to possess her didn't Maeglin get a dude thrown off the high wall? Yeah, his dad. Maeglin is the reason his dad died, like, got thrown off the wall. 
Because, uh, remember, Meglin's mother jumped in front of the spear that his dad was throwing at him, right? Aeol, the Dark Elf, had that spear that was tipped with poison and threw it at Meglin, but um, his mom jumped in front. I cannot remember uh, her name right now. Because it's Meglin, Aeol, and... Uh... Who is it? Mm. Arathel. Arathel. Thank you. Thank you, chat. Here we go. Uh, here we go. For his secret, uh, and Meglin's secret hatred grew ever greater, for he desired above all things to possess her, and the only heir to the king of Gondolin. But so high did Tuor stand in the favor of the king, that when he had dwelt there for seven years, Torgon did not refuse him even the hand of his daughter. For though he would not heed the bidding of Ulmo, he perceived that the fate of the Noldor was wound with the one whom Ulmo had sent, and he did not forget the words of Huor, that Huor spoke to him before the host of Gondolin departed from the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. Then there was made a great and joyful feast, for Tuor had won the hearts of all the people, save only of Maeglin and his secret following. And thus there came to pass the second union of elves and men. So we get another Baron and Luthien. It's an elf and a man, and they're all in love, and everything's great. For now. In the spring of that year after, or excuse me, in the spring of that year after was born in Gondolin Earendil Half-Elven, the son of Tuor and Idril Celebrindal. And that was 500 years and three since the coming of the Noldor to Middle-earth. Of surpassing beauty was Earendil, uh, for the light was in his face as the light of the havens. And he had the beauty and the wisdom of the Eldar and the strength and hardihood of men of old. And the sea spoke ever in his ear and heart, even as with Tuor, his father. If uh, you remember from any of my TikToks or um, any of my uh, mentionings, in previous videos, you will remember Arendil's name. It's been mentioned a few times. It's Elrond's dad. So we are getting very, very close to seeing characters from the original trilogy. And they're, they're less ancestors and now grandparents and parents. Then the days of Gondolin were yet full of joy and peace, and none knew that the region herein, wherein the Hidden Kingdom lay, had been at last revealed to Morgoth by the cries of Horin, when, standing in the wilderness beyond the encircling mountains and finding no entrance, he called on Torgon in despair. Thereafter the thought of Morgoth was bent unceasing on the mountainous land between Anak and the upper waters of Sirion, whither his servants had never passed. Yet still no spy or creature out of Angband could come there because of the vigilance of the eagles and Morgoth was thwarted in the fulfillment of his designs. But Idril Celebrindal was wise and far-seeing, and her heart misgave her, and foreboding crept upon her spirit as a cloud. Therefore in that time she let prepare a secret way that should lead down from the city, passing out beneath the surface of the plain issue, of the plain issue far, issue far beyond the walls, northward of Amon Guareth, and she contrived it, that the work was known 
but to a few, and no whisper of it came to Maglin's ears. So even Maglin doesn't, or excuse me, even Idril doesn't trust Maglin. Now at a time when Idril was yet young, Maglin was lost, for he, as has been told, loved mining and quarrying after metals above all other craft and he was master and leader of the elves whom had worked on the mountains distant from that city, seeking after metals for their smithying of things both of war and peace. But often Maeglin went with few of his folk beyond the leaguer of the hills, and the king knew not that his bidding was defied, so he's sneaking out in secret. Maeglin is sneaking out in secret. Uh, and thus it came to pass as fate willed, that Maglin was taken prisoner by orcs and brought to Angband. Maglin was no weakling or craven, but the torment wherewith he was threatened cowed his spirit, and he purchased his life and freedom by revealing to Morgoth the very place of Gondolin and the ways whereby it might be found and assailed. Great indeed was the joy of Morgoth, and to Maglin he promised the lordship of Gondolin as his vassal and the possession of Idril Celebrindal, and when the city should be taken, and the desire, and the and indeed desire for Idril and hatred for Tuor, led Maglin the easier to his treachery, most infamous in all the histories of the elder days. But Morgoth sent him back to Gondolin, lest any should suspect the betrayal, and so that Maglin should aid to aid, should aid the assault from within. When the hour came, and he abode in the house, in the halls of the hills, with smiling faces and evil in his heart, while the darkness gathered ever deeper upon Idril. At last, in the years of Era, in the year when Erendil was seven years old, Morgoth was ready, and he loosed upon Gondolin his Balrogs, and his orcs, and his wolves, and with them came dragons of the brood of Glaurung and they were become now many and terrible. The host of Morgoth came over the northern walls where the heights were greatest and the watch least vigilant, and it came at night upon a time of festival when all the people of Gondolin were upon the walls to await the rising sun and sing their song as it uplifts, for the morrow was the great feast that they named the Gates of Summer. Okay, we're back. Sorry, that was definitely shorter than 30 seconds, but thank you for being patient. Okay, I want to read you this part because it's important. It's on page 83 of The Fall of Gondolin. By the way, for those interested, that is Alan Lee's interpretation of Gondolin. I want to read you a point because the idea visually is that there is this festival going on and everyone's really happy and... Um, you basically get this idea of everybody is along the walls, like everyone is along the walls of like Minas Tirith or Helm's Deep, just waiting for the sun to come up because it's a celebration. And do you know what comes over the hills and the mountains instead of the sun? It's Balrogs riding dragons. There is one line that absolutely sends chills down my spine. I'll read you this part. Then the Balrogs continued to shoot darts of fire and flaming arrows like small snakes into the sky, 
and these fell upon the roofs and the gardens of Gondolin till all the trees were scorched, and the flowers and grass burned up, and the whiteness of those walls and colonnades was blackened and seared. Yet a worse matter was... What, uh, excuse me. Yet a worse matter was it that a company of those demons climbed upon the coils of those serpents of iron and thence loosed unceasingly from their bows and slings till the fire began to burn in the city to the back of the main army. Balrogs used to ride dragons. Let's continue. But the red light mounted the hills in the north and not the east, and there was no stay of the advance of the foe until they were beneath the very walls of Gondolin, and the city was beleaguered without hope. Of the deeds of, depart of desperate valor there done by the chieftains of the noble houses and their warriors, and not least by Tuor, much is told in The Fall of Gondolin. That book. Of the battle of Ecthelion of the Fountain with Gothmog the Lord of Balrogs in the very square of the king, where each slew each other, and the defense of the Tower of Torgon by the peoples of his household, until the tower was overthrown, and mighty was its fall, and the fall of Torgon in its ruin. Tuor sought to rescue Idril from the sack of the city, but Maeglin had laid hands on her, and on Erendil, and Tuor fought with Maeglin on the walls and cast him far out, and his body, as it fell, smote the rocky slopes of Amon Gwarath, thrice ere it pitched into the flames below. Then Tuor and Idril led such remnants of the people of Gondolin as they could, as they could gather in the confusion of the burning down, of the burning, excuse me, let me try that again. Then Tuor and Idril led such remnant of the people of Gondolin as they could gather in the confusion of the burning, down the secret way which Idril had prepared, and of that passage the captains of Angband knew nothing, and thought not of any fugitives, that any fugitives would take a path towards the north and the highest part of the mountains, and the nigh and the nighest to Angband, basically the closest to Angband. The fumes of the burning, and the steam of the fair fountain of Gondolin withering in the flame of the dragons of the north, fell upon the vale of Tumladen in mournful mist. Thus was the escape of Tuor and his company aided, for there was still a long and open road to follow from the tunnel's mouth to the foothills of the mountains. Nonetheless they came thither, and beyond hope they climbed in woe and misery, for, a high, for the high places were cold and terrible, and they had among them many that were wounded, and women and children. There was a dreadful pass, Kirith Toronoth, it was named, the Eagle's Cleft, where beneath the shadow of the highest peak a narrow path wound its way on the right hand, it was walled by a precipice, and on the left a dreadful fall leapt into emptiness. So it's one of those cliffs that you have to like scale, side like, kind of like crab shuffle. Along that narrow way their march was strung. And when they were ambushed by orcs, uh, for Morgoth had set watchers about the encircling hills, and a Balrog was with them. Then dreadful was their plight, and hardly would they have been saved by the valor, and 
and hardly would they have been have been saved by the valor of the yellow-haired Glorfindel, chief of the house of the golden flower of Gondolin, had not Thorondor come timely to their aid. Thorondor is the eagle, you'll remember. Many are the songs that have been sung of the duel of Glorfindel with the Balrog upon the pinnacle of rock in that high place. Fun fact, this is the same Glorfindel from the original trilogy that rescues Frodo in the books. And both fell to ruin in the abyss. But the eagles coming stooped upon the orcs and drove them back, shrieking, and all were slain or cast into the deeps. Actually, you know what? Hang on. Screw it. I'm reading to you from the fall of Gondolin. That was a half a paragraph. Half a freaking paragraph. Absolutely not. Here we go. You ready for this? This is the fall of Gondolin, but it is so much better uh, in this version. Already the half had passed the perilous ways and the falls of the Thorn Sir, where the Balrog, when that Balrog that was with the rearward foe leapt with great might on the certain lofty rocks that stood into the path of the left side upon the lip of the chasm. So he's blocking the way. And thence, with a leap of fury, he was past Glorfindel's men, and among the women, and sick in front, lashing his whip of flame. Then Glorfindel leapt forward upon him, and his golden armor gleamed strangely in the moon, and he hewed at that demon, that it leapt again up on the great boulder, and Glorfindel after. Now there was a deadly combat upon the high rocks above, above the folk, and these, pressed behind and hindered, were grown so close that well-nigh all you could see... Yet it was over ere Glorfindel's men could leap to his side. The ardor of Glorfindel drove that Balrog from point to point, and his mail fended him from the whips and claws. Now he had been, been beaten. Now he had beaten a heavy singe upon its iron helm. Now hewn off the creature's whip, the creature's whip arm at the elbow. Then sprang the Balrog in torment of his pain and full fear of Glorfindel, who stabbed like a dart of a snake. But he found only a shoulder and was grappled, and, that sway and they swayed to a fall upon the crag top. Then Glorfindel's left hand sought a dirk, and this he thrust up, and it pierced the Belrog's belly nigh to his own face, for that demon was double his stature, and it shrieked and fell backward from the rock, and falling, clutched Glorfindel's yellow locks beneath his cap, and those twain fell into the abyss. Right? Right? Yeah, I might, I might read this next. We just read the first part of The Fall of Gondolin, because that's how you write. Like, right? Oh, so good. All right. That's the battle scene I wanted to read to you, because it was worth it. Okay. Then Thor... Okay, so we're back to this. Then Thorondor bore up Glorfindel's body out of the abyss, and they buried him on a mound of stone beside the pass. And a green turf came there, and yellow flowers bloomed upon it amid the barrenness of stone, until the world was changed. Thus, led by Tuor, son of Huor, the remnants of Gondolin passed over the mountains, and came down to the Vale of Sirion, and fleeing southward by weary and dangerous marches, they came at length to Non-Tarathen, the land of willows, for the power of Ulmo 
yet ran in the great river, and it was about them. There they rested a while, and were healed of their hurts and weariness. But their sorrows could not be healed, and they made a feast in memory of Gondolin, and of the elves that had perished there, the maidens, the wives, the warriors of the king, and for Glorfindel, the beloved, many songs were sang under the willows of Nantothren in the waning of the year. There, Tuor made a song for Earendil, his son, concerning the coming of Ulmo, the lord of waters, to the shores of Nevrast aforetime, and the sea-longing awoke in his heart, and in his sons also. Therefore, therefore Idril and Tuor departed from Nantothren and went southward down the river to the sea, and they dwelt there by the mouths of Sirion, and joined their people to the company of Elwing, Dior's daughter, that had fled thither but a little while before. And when the tidings came to Balar of the fall of Gondolin and the death of Torgon, Eregion Gilgalad, son of Thingon, was named High King of the Noldor of Middle-earth. Erenion Gilgalad, huh? Does it sound familiar? But Morgoth thought that his triumph was fulfilled, recking little of the sons of Feanor and of their oath, which had harmed him never, and turned away, and turned always to his mightiest aid, and in his black thought he laughed, regretting not the one Silmaril that he had lost, for by it, he deemed, the last shred of the people of the Eldar should vanish from Middle-earth and trouble it no more. If he knew of the dwelling by the waters of Sirion, he gave no sign, biding his time and waiting upon the workings of oath and lie. Yet by Sirion and the sea there grew up an elven folk, the gleamings, the gleanings of Doriath and Gondolin, and from Balar the mariners of Cirdon came among them, and they took to the waves and the building of ships, dwelling ever nigh to the coast of Avernia, Avernian, under the shadow of Ulmo's hand. And it was said that in that time Ulmo came to Valinor, out of the deep waters, and spoke there to the Valar of the need of the elves. And he called on them to forgive them, and rescue them from the overmastering might of Morgoth, and win back the Silmarils, wherein alone now bloomed the light of the days of bliss, where the two trees still shone in Valinor. But Manwe moved not. And of the counsel of his heart, what tale should tell? The wise have said that the hour was not yet come, that only one speaking in person for the cause of both elves and men pleading for pardon on the misdeeds and pity on their woe might move the counsels of the powers. Basically saying, a Valar is not going to help change the mind of another Valar. The only thing that could change the mind of a Valar is one of the elves, or men, humans, I should say. And the oath of Feanor, perhaps even Manwe, could not loose, until it found its end, and the sons of Feanor relinquished the Silmarils, upon which they had laid their ruthless claim. For the light which lit the Silmarils, the Valar themselves had made. In those days, Tuor, felt old age creep upon him, and even a longing for the deeps of the sea, and ever a longing 
for the deeps of the sea grew strong in his heart. Therefore, I hate this part too, he built a great ship and named it Aarame, which is Sea Wing. And with Idril Celebrindal, he set sail into the sunset and the west, and came no more into any tale or song. But in after days it is sung that two or alone of mortal men was numbered among the elder race, and was joined with the Noldor whom he loved, and his fate is sundered from the fate of men. I will pause there, and we will stop our reading for this week. Thank you all for joining me. Bye, YouTube. I will see you all next time.